I welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm talking to Chang Xu. Chang is a senior biostatistician at Kaijin, and we will be talking about his software SM Counter 2, which is a low frequency variant caller uh, for targeted sequencing data with unique molecular identifiers. Chang, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Roman, for having me here. Chang, I'm interested in your background. Uh, you're very different from my usual guests who are usually academics, and uh, you work in the industry as a biostatistician. Let's start with your education. Where did you study and what did you study? Oh, sure. Yeah, I got my uh, PhD in statistics uh, from the University of Missouri. And uh, before that, I uh, studied uh, mathematics uh, in Peking University in China. Were you already interested in bioinformatics back then? You know, I, I always know the bioinformatics field, even like 10 years ago. But I really got into this field after I joined Kyogen. What was your path before joining Kyogen? What were you up to? Right. Uh, before Kyogen, I was uh, working in uh, Ventana Medical Systems which is part of the Roche tissue diagnostics. So uh, I worked there for about uh, one and a half years as a biostatistician. It's a diagnostic company. The main business is to develop the companion diagnostics for oncology treatments. Right. So you were already into into biology back then, but you said it actually clicked for you when you moved to, to Kyogen, right? Yes. What do you do at Kyogen? Well, uh, just like other biostatisticians, the, the daily job is um, data analysis, statistical modeling, um, and, uh, you know, talking to the scientists and other uh, team members. Um, but the difference here in Kaijin is um, it's more focused on the genomic data, uh, which falls into the bioinformatics category. You know, as a as a biostatistician, the traditional career path is, or most about statistician, industry biostatistician's career path is uh, in uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, doing clinical trials, uh, which is basically highly regulated, uh, highly regulated field. Uh, but uh, What's fascinating about bioinformatics is that it's really new. Uh, it's really cutting edge, a lot of unanswered questions, and uh, it's an interdisciplinary area that combines statistics, um, biology, machine learning, and uh, computer science. That's what makes it uh, very collaborative and very interesting. Did you always know that you wanted to work in a company as opposed to, say, university? No. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I actually I was um, quite determined to become a, a researcher or a professor. Um, and I actually, uh, you know, after graduation, I actually stayed one year in the University of Cincinnati as a visiting assistant professor there. Um, uh, but then, you know, one thing is, uh, at that time, it was uh, difficult to uh, get a tenure track assistant professor job 
in United States. Uh, and uh, secondly, you know, even in, in at that time and even more in recent years, I I started to feel that uh, it will be more fulfilling uh, to work on real life projects that has a direct and a bigger impact to the world. So those are the reasons that drove me to to industry. Right, but in terms of your day to day work, how do you think it's different from what you would have done if you were at academia? Of course, the big difference is in private sectors, you don't need to teach. And uh, you kind of uh, have to do some some of the uh, routine work that probably in academia, you uh, uh, most of your your work is more innovative and uh, um, more theoretical. But here in industry, it's result-oriented. You don't have to create a new uh, methodology or you don't have to reinvent a wheel uh, to publish uh, papers. What matters is can you get the job done? Can you get the results that we wanted? Interesting, because you you still continue publishing papers while at Kaijin, right? So is this just yeah. a byproduct of, of your main activity, or are you evaluated based also on your research output, like published papers? Uh, I, I, I guess both. Publishing is not a must, but it's an important aspect of my job because I work in the research and development uh, department. So... You can say the the nature of my job is research and development, so that involves publishing. You want your research to be known and to be peer reviewed uh, uh, with the field. Why, while working for for this profit making company, right? You would think that, or I think many companies treat it that way that they don't they don't want their research to be known because they invest in this research they are, their own money. And so they want naturally to be the only ones benefiting from that research. So why does Kaijin want to publish their results so that they their competitors can take advantage of it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, but this publishing activity is uh, is not only about Kaijin. Many companies actually publish their their research work. So um, I guess uh, as for Kaijin. The main reason is we don't we don't sell the software, we don't sell our data analysis. So the data analysis is to support the Kaijin's next generation sequencing product. So since we're not selling this, then why don't we publish? Yeah, that's uh, I guess that's the famous uh, business trick of um, commoditizing the complement, right? That's uh, what. Um... A lot of tech companies do releasing open source software. Yeah. And it's also, there is a marketing consideration. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because of that, because you published your software and your preprint about the software, you're now here talking to me, right? Yeah, yeah. Most most of our customers are, uh, like you said, uh, professors or uh, biologists or researchers in academia. And they they do read those (laughs) publications. So, so there is a there is a value in publication, even for for the for profit company. Absolutely, yeah. 
So the specific thing I wanted to uh, discuss with you is variant calling. Let's start with a general introduction. What is variant calling? The variant calling in general is to identify the DNA mutation. So as you know, um, each human has new, uh, countless mutations in, in their DNA, uh, different types. There, there are point mutations, there are insertion deletions, and there are copy number variations. And those mutations are highly associated with diseases, genetic diseases such as uh, cancer or cystic fibrosis. So that's why uh, this mutation detection or or in terms of bioinformatics, that's variant calling is so important in medical research. Right. So there are two important classes of mutations, right? There, uh, there are germline mutations and there are somatic mutations. Yes. And uh, specifically, your tool is about somatic mutations. So what is the difference between those two? Why, why does it matter? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, germline mutations are the ones that you inherit from your parents. So uh, then uh, somatic mutations are the ones that you develop or you acquire during the course of life. So in terms of identifying these mutations, uh, germline mutations are much easier to identify because you know you you inherited from your parents, so it either exists in 50% of your uh, DNA or 100%. So you actually know in advance uh, how how much they exist, or uh, the te- technical term is called a leo frequency. But uh, somatic mutations are much harder because uh, they can they can be there in any percentage, 1%, 0.5%. 75%. Uh, so without this uh, allele frequency knowledge, and uh, uh, in addition, uh, it can it can be there in very low frequency, so that makes it harder, much harder to detect. Right. So somatic mutation or somatic variant calling is harder than germline muta- germline variant calling, right? So. You, you could say that a somatic variant caller could call germline mutations, although it would be probably not very efficient, but not vice versa. You couldn't use a um, normal variant caller, germline variant caller, to call somatic mutations because those violate a lot of assumptions baked into the normal germline variant callers, right? Yes, I, I think the second part is definitely right. Uh, using a traditional germline variant caller to detect somatic variants, uh, especially low allele frequency somatic variants, would be not appropriate. You you will not get a good result. Uh, regarding to the first part, uh, so uh, in my experience, using a somatic variant caller to detect germline variants uh, usually will also be you will also get very high accuracy just because uh, germline variants are easier to to detect. And so because somatic variant calling is hard, you advocate in your preprint uh, to use 
something called UMI or unique molecular identifiers to improve somatic variant calling and, and make it maybe a bit easier or, or more robust. Uh, what are unique molecular identifiers? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, just a little background. Uh, the reason why somatic variant calling is difficult, there are a couple of reasons. One, one of them is what I just mentioned, because you don't know the allele frequency. Uh, another reason is the noise in the next generation sequencing data. So, so now we, I, I think we are limited to the uh, to variant calling in next generation sequencing data. You know, I, I know there are there are other methods, but uh, we're only not. I I'm only focused on the NGS. So, typical NGS data has a a high error rate. For example, the common Illumina sequencers, the, the error rate could be one in a thousand bases. So such error rates are fine for germline variant calling, but for a low frequency somatic variant callings, uh, it could cause trouble. It could cause false positives. So that is why this UMI technology became more and more popular in recent years. The technology is basically trying to uh, correct the noise in the NGS data. So it basically attaches a short random sequence to each DNA molecule. So this is called UMI, Unique Molecular Identifier. So then uh, this UMI-attached DNA molecule goes into PCR amplification and sequencing, and uh, eventually you can retrieve this UMI sequence from the reads. Then after you retrieve the UMI in the reads, because each DNA molecule uh, will be amplified for many, many times. So in the actual reads, you will see different duplications of the same DNA molecule with the same UMI sequence. You know they come from the same DNA molecule. Then you can do a consensus of these uh, reads that are sharing the same UMI to correct sequencing errors. So that is how this UMI technology reduces the noise level in the data. Right. So the the way I visualize it or I think about it is, so like you have a lot of reads covering the same sort of reference human genome, right? So you can align those reads to the human genome and, and stack them up. And so sometimes you will see that in some small percent of these reads you have like instead of a you have a t right and so mm -hmm. you're left wondering whether uh, in this one percent of cells there is an a instead of t genuinely or that this particular region was just sequenced 100 times and in one read of 100 you have um you have a base calling error um and so what yeah. you might allows you to do is to draw a line between those two cases. So, right, you know exactly how many times each fragment was sequenced, essentially. Yes, I think, I think you gave a very good, uh, you know, example. So if you have 1% of A becoming T, then you need to decide, hey, if this 1% is due to sequencing error, or 
due to a genuine mutation. So UMI allows you to track each read to the original DNA molecule. So for example, if you if you find 10, 10 of these reads coming from the same molecule, meaning they share the same UMI, then uh, if there is no sequencing error in the ideal case, if there's no sequencing error, then these 10 reads will all show A or T. They should be homogeneous. So if for this UMI, all the 10 reads showing T, then that means it's probably a real mutation of A to T. Now, if among these 10 reads, there are nine A's and only one T, then this one T is more likely a sequencing error, right? Because all 10 reads come from the same molecule. So this is called consensus. Through this consensus procedure, you can kind of uh, decide which one, which T's are genuine T's and which T's are the sequencing error among the 1% T's. So your analysis process could be split into two parts. In, in the first part, essentially remove sequencing errors. So the UMIs allow you to construct this consensus sequence and uh, essentially make it as if though you had perfect sequencing technology, which makes uh, one error in million or something. And uh, then I guess you just discard the UMIs, you discard the um, the PCR duplicates, and you proceed as if this was like a normal somatic variant color, just designed for this flawless sequencing technology. Is that about it? Um, yes, that's a general idea. But in terms of uh, implementation, you know, SM Counter and SM Counter Two, we we don't really do an explicit consensus. Mm. Yeah, for UMI based variant coding, there are two approaches. One approach is what you described: you consensus, uh, you know, you consensus the each UMI to a single read. Then you feed this consensus the read set to a Traditional semantic variant caller. That's uh, that's a two-stage approach. The downside of this approach is that usually the traditional semantic variant caller they're not designed for UMI data. Uh, so their error model behind the the error model behind these variant callers may not be compatible with the consensus read set. So basically, you, you, you're you trying to harmonize the consensus approach and the traditional variant caller, which is a hard process. Uh, then the second approach is, you know, you do everything in a, in a single software package. And uh, there are several, several such uh, software packages. We re- released SM Counter uh, two years ago which is, uh, I believe, one of the first UMI-aware variant callers. And, uh, and of course, SM Counter 2, that's a, this is an upgrade. Uh, and there are other UMI-aware variant callers uh, like McGarry and uh, uh, 
there is another one. I don't remember the name right now. Uh, so so uh, the commonality of these packages is you know you don't rely on a third party variant caller. So everything is uh, in one package. You don't need to worry about error model not being compatible. Got it. So one alternative to UMI is to rely on random fragmentation size. Could you explain how that works and sort of pros and cons of UMIs versus random fragmentation sites? Yeah, random fragmentation, I guess that's because in sequencing protocols, there's a step to randomly fragment the DNA molecule to shorter sequences, several hundred base long. Because the start and end point of the, uh, these short sequences are random, so you can deduplicate the uh, sequences according to the start and end coordinates. But this method doesn't really apply to our data because our method uses, we, we are called the targeted sequencing. So we use PCR uh, to capture the, uh, the target that we want to sequence. So in this case, we don't really have a random start. We have a fixed start. Then only the end position is random. So then this randomness is uh, severely reduced, greatly reduced. Uh, so you, you, you will see a lot of different DNA molecules actually having the same start and end. Yeah, this is, this is a very good point. So it is exactly the fact that you do this targeted sequencing um, and targeted meaning so let's say we're applying this to cancer which is sort of the obvious goal for um, somatic mutations so presumably you know certain cancer gene and that's where you're looking for these mutations is that why you do targeted sequencing uh yes that's that's one of the reasons why we do targeted sequencing because uh like you said, you're only interested in certain genes. And uh, the other reason is sometimes we want to sequence really deep to in order to call the very low-frequency mutations. So when you sequence very, very deep, uh, the, the cost will you know, increase. So you kind of have to limit in a shorter genomic region. So in, your, in the data, you got to analyze what was the depth of sequencing and what was the breadth of sequencing, how much you know, of the genome did you sequence. And also, speaking of coverage, I was thinking that once you introduce UMIs, you have essentially two different measures of depth. So there is measure of depth, how many PCR uh, applicants you sequence for every fragment how many reads with the same UMI you have. And the second depth is once you reduce, if you were to reduce them to a consensus sequence, right? How densely would those consensus sequences with distinct UMIs cover your region of interest? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have, so two measures. One is UMI depths. So how many distinct UMIs cover this region or this position. Uh, and the other one is 
how many reads per UMI. Uh, the UMI depth depends on two factors. One is how much DNA you input, uh, and second is the uh, sequence capacity of your your sequencer. And uh, the uh, the reads, number of reads per UMI is a function of the sequencing capacity only. So back to your original question, you know, you were asking the depth and the width. Yeah, what are the typical numbers that you deal with? Yeah, uh, that depends on how low you want to go. Uh, depends on the, you know, if you want to, for example, if you want to detect 1% variance. In one of our experiments, we used 3,500 UMIs per base and uh, about 15 reads per UMI. Hmm. So that's 3,500 times 15 reads. Yeah, that's, that's very deep. Uh, very deep. It's probably an overkill, I have to admit. Um, uh, we, we have a guideline in our product book. We have a guideline to instruct you how, how deep you may go for 1% or 5%. Or ten percent variance. Uh, I don't remember specifically, but you do need to go very deep for for those low frequency variants. Then, uh, in terms of the genomic regions, uh, that also depends on a lot of factors. Uh, but uh, one of the panels that we did included a little less than two hundred genes. So, and uh, in terms of base pair, it's it's about 800, 900K base pair, so almost one megabase. So when talking about UMIs, one thing that comes immediately to mind is UMIs that are used in single-cell RNA sequencing. And uh, it's interesting, like, on the one hand, they are very similar. On the other hand, they solve almost like the opposite purposes, because in single-cell RNA sequencing, PCR duplicates are a nuisance. You want to just get rid of them. Uh-huh. And um, and so you use UMIs to filter them out, whereas here you specifically want to achieve many reads per UMI. But what's the connection, as you said, between these two uses of UMI? Uh, let me start with the difference. So the main purpose of UMI in mutation detection is to correct sequencing errors. But there isn't such a need in single-cell RNA-seq, at least not, not so much as in DNA. But a common function of UMI in these two applications is to correct the technical noise or the amplification bias. So imagine, imagine if you have two genes, you know, one with... 100 reads and one with 150 reads, then you might see the expression ratio is 1 to 1.5. But uh, this this uh, fold change might might be caused by the amplification bias. This one gene is amplified more than the other. So that's why you want to count UMI in this RNA-seq. It, it may turn out that the real fold change is only 1 to 1.2, right? So that's that's the 
amplification bias in RNA-seq, I think that's the, one of the important reasons why people use UMI. But that function is also important in DNA-seq. We also, we don't want to, you know, count the reads, which uh, is subject to amplification bias, because this bias could affect the allele frequency, then affect your uh, variant calling. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, because typically when you do DNA sequencing, you don't care about the amounts, right? Um, sometimes you care, like in metagenomics, but mostly you don't. But here, because you're also interested in uh, in the allele frequency, right? So you don't want just to output a list of variants. You yeah. also want to assign them the frequencies, and of course, this amplification biases can affect the frequencies. Yeah, right. So that's why uh, we want to count the the molecules directly. So that that's that's what SM counter the name come from. It's it's, it's for uh it's short for single molecule counter. Uh, you want to count the single molecules instead of the reads. So let's talk about the specific algorithms behind somatic variant colors. You mentioned that there are two different approaches. Right. One approach is uh, to call consensus sequences and then work with the consensus sequences. But you also said that SM counter does not do that, does not explicitly construct these consensus sequences. Is that true also of like its competitors? I know uh, I have to tell the story. I know you wrote this uh, very, very nice review of different somatic variant colors and uh, the way I know that is while I was preparing for this podcast, I, I was researching, I found this very nice review and I was reading it and I liked it a lot. And only later I actually looked up who wrote it and it was you. <laughs> it, it was a nice coincidence. So you must know quite a bit about the other variant colors as well. Uh, do they construct consensus sequences or do all the variant colors use the second strategy, which will talk about in a minute i don't think there is any competition uh, so it's not a competitor it's just an alternative variant caller called mcgarry in mcgarry there is a explicit consensus it does have a consensus to read set but the key part is it doesn't rely on a third-party variant caller so that's the key difference so you you can right. you can you can consensus on the fly, inexplicitly like SM counter, SM counter two, or you can actually do the consensus explicitly. Uh, but the key part is you should not feed the consensus reads to another variant caller, which relies, which assumes a completely different error model. Um, you should do the variant calling yourself using the consensus reads that you built. Right, right. So what is the strategy? Do, do you align the reads like one by one? For consensus, for at least for uh, DNA consensus, I think it makes sense to align it before consensus. So you're, you, you align the reads and uh, generate a, a BAM file, right? So that's the aligned reads. Then uh, you consensus. You 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 stack the the reads on top of each other. Then then do a consensus 
on a base by base level. It's interesting. I I was thinking that it would be easier to sort of collect all the reads with the same UMI and first find the consensus within that UMI group, wouldn't it? You mean you do the consensus without mapping to the reference genome? Yeah, I was thinking that it would be better first to collect the UMI groups, find consensus within them, and only then map the result to the genome because then you have that much less mapping. Yeah, but my argument is mapping will be valuable information to help you get a more accurate consensus because the reference genome serves as an anchor so you know exactly where each read come from. Now, I know in some other applications where you don't have a reference genome, uh, for example, in fusion detection, you know, you don't really know what's the what's the reference genome, or in uh, mark microbiome. So, in other ap- applications where there's no reference genome, then you can do the consensus without mapping. But for DNA variant calling, if the, there is reference genome, then why not use it? Okay, so then you align, but obviously you don't take into account the UMI while aligning, right? So, you, no. do you like mask it, or do yeah, you separate it from it. the read? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The UMIs are masked from mapping. Right. And so you, and now we're talking right specifically about SM counter 2, so the algorithm behind SM counter 2. So you align the reads to the genome. So what, what do you do next? So I, I guess the process goes like this the first step is to stack your reads on each position. So the algorithm uh, iterates or travels uh, position by position. And each position is treated as independent from other positions. So at one position, you're going to pile up all the reads that cover that position. So then uh, then the data you got is basically a bunch of ACGTs and maybe insertion deletions. Then you're going to group these reads that cover the position by UMI. So you end up with UMI families. So this is, this is the first step. Then the second step is uh, the consensus. Now within each UMI family, SM counter 2 will um, see how these read, reads agree with each other. So it calculates a agreement rate. By default, SM counter 2 requires 80% agreement. Within the UMI group? Within the UMI family. Yeah. yeah. If the agreement reaches 80%, then you have a successful consensus. Otherwise, this entire UMI is discarded. How did you arrive at 80%? Is it just a common sense thing? The, there, are, there are several considerations. 80% is, uh, for example, if you have five reads, which five reads per UMI, which uh, many of the, many of our applications uh, have that kind of uh, UMI uh, read depths. So if you have five reads per UMI, we uh, allow one mismatch. Now, when you have only four reads per UMI, then the 80% threshold will require all the four to be exactly matched. So that that is basically 
how this eighty five uh this eighty percent came. Right. Yeah. It's a it's an empirical threshold. Well, empirical in the sense that you try different thresholds and this works the best, or empirical in the sense that like we just tried this and it works fine. We did we did try ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't try anything lower than that. It's, I guess it's both empirical and uh, based on experience. I just believe anything lower than 80% will be just too low. And we did try 90% and the, I don't see too much difference. So changing this threshold, sort of, um, it, the threshold itself is a compromise between false positives and between false negatives, right? Yeah. So if you have a very high threshold, you will have false negatives. When you fail to detect variants, and if you have small threshold, you will have false positives. When you call a um, variant when there is a sequencing error or something, and so I'm curious, what are the costs associated with false positives and false negatives, right? Because presumably the threshold should depend on the uh, you know, utility function of the right. person performing the experiment. So if you're if you're just screening, then you might prefer lower false negatives because you don't want to miss a variant. Whereas if you are uh, testing for a drug or, I don't know, like under some other scenario, you would like a very high threshold. So what what are yeah. the typical costs in this sort of studies? Right. I think it's a, it's a very good question that we try to answer every day. Uh, <laughs> it's the sensitivity specificity trade-off. So basically, which point you want to be in the ROC curve. Yeah. Most of our parameter settings are tuned for high specificity. We can sacrifice a little bit on sensitivity, but we don't want to have a lot of false positives. One of the main reasons is the real mutations are very rare in the genome, maybe single digits or double digits in the megabase. I'm talking about somatic mutations. So when you have so few real mutations, it becomes unreasonable to have a high false positive, right? If you Mm -hmm. have... 10 false positives per megabase, then your uh, false discovery rate would be you know, 30%, 40%, and that is not acceptable. I guess another reason is related to this. I don't know if you are familiar with the this oncology biomarker called tumor mutational burden. No. It's basically counting the number of somatic mutations per megabase in the in the patient's tumor, and uh, it's a it's a biomarker for some of the very popular immunotherapy. And uh, the cutoff for tumor mutational burden, high versus low, is the cutoff is ten per megabase. So if mm-hmm. you have ten somatic mutations per megabase, your 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 tumor mutational burden high. Otherwise, you're low. And high and low means completely different treatment strategies. So imagine you have five uh, false positives per megabase. It's going to completely mess up this uh, biomarker. So this uh, the requirement for specificity trumps the 
sensitivity, in my opinion. Well, couldn't you make the same argument like if you miss five true somatic mutations, again, you get a different treatment, right? If, you, if it was high and it became low, so it works in the, in the opposite direction as well? You can make the, this argument, uh, but if you miss five per megabit, that means your sensitivity will probably drop from 90% to 60%. Mm. Uh, of course, we, we would not allow that either. Uh, when uh, when I talk about trade-off, it's not like we're gonna sacrifice thirty percent sensitivity for 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 a little bit higher specificity. It's it's uh it's all in a smaller scale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you analyze. So b- back to our read stacked on top of the genome. So you run base by base, and yeah. you look at all the bases that are on top of it. Uh, this co- column of of bases, and you consider every UMI family. Within the UMI family, you require that the consensus is at least 80%. Yes. If not, you just remove the whole UMI family. You don't yes. consider it. Yes. If there is the consensus there, what do you do next? Yeah. Um, if there is a consensus... So, so after this step... You will have a consensus consensus the stack of bases. So where the each UMI family contributes only one base, right? right each UMI family contributes only one base. Um, then the next step is essentially a uh, hypothesis testing procedure. Um, so before before this uh, base by base variant coding, we have a uh, we have already um, developed a baseline error rate distribution, which models the PCR polymerase error rate in our protocol. It's a baseline error rate. Once you have the UMI level allele frequency, you're going to compare that allele frequency to this baseline error rate. Now, if that allele frequency is much higher than the baseline, then the natural conclusion is this cannot come from the error, then it must be a real mutation. Right, so you sort of separate the two components of possible sequencing errors, right? There is a component that um, the sequencing went wrong, but then the the sequencing errors are independent between different reads in the same UMI family, so you get rid of those errors when you remove uh, when when you call consensus within UMI groups, right? So everything that's left are either true somatic mutations or artifacts of the sample prep. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, UMI has its limitation. It only corrects for uh, sequencing error or PCR error in later cycles. But imagine if you if your PCR made a mistake during the first cycle, then everything gets carried along. This this mistake gets carried along. Then all the reads within this UMI will will carry this error. There is no way to tell if it's a uh, real one or a first cycle PCR error. So uh, that's why we had to model the probability of the first cycle PCR errors. 
Now, uh, once we have the model of that, which we used a uh, beta by a beta distribution to to model that probability. Now, once we have that distribution, you can compare your allele frequency from the data, which obviously you don't know if it's a error or real mutation. So you compare that allele frequency against this baseline error model, do a hypothesis testing, calculate a p-value to to determine if it's real or not. Right. So the beta distribution, and for those who don't know, beta distribution is a distribution over probabilities, right? So it right. ascribes probabilities to probabilities, to numbers between 0 and 1. Right. Um, and so this beta distribution models the probabilities across like different positions, right? So you assume that at every position, you have a different probability of a mutation, but those probabilities, when sort of pulled together, they form this beta distribution. Why, why exactly would they be different between position between the positions? Yeah, each position might have a different uh, error rate, mainly because of genomic context. For example, in generally in non-coding regions or repetitive regions, the errors are error rates are higher uh, than the coding regions. And uh, I guess in some specific genomic region, the error rates are just higher. And also there is a level of pure randomness. So you, you, you never know which, which base will have a high error rate. Okay. And so the, the beta distribution has two parameters, which you estimate. So you, you said in the preprint that you created a profile for the specific polymerase that you use. So if, if I wanted to use a different polymerase, I would have to come up with a different beta distribution, essentially, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and how exactly did you run that experiment? How do you know the ground truth? So you sequence something that shouldn't have any mutations, right? Sort of. We, we know the ground truth because we sequenced the uh, uh, reference standard from the Genome in a Bottle consortium. So this consortium characterized the several uh, human genome cell lines. So basically, they have the ground truth mutations of these cell lines. So the so the true mutations are known. Then uh, we mix two of these. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, we just used one of these uh, fully characterized cell lines where we know all the mutations. Then obviously all the other mutations. All the other positions are uh, wild type, so that's that's how we get the ground truth. The, for the experiment, we we need to sequence it sequence it really really deep and uh, use a large, the high uh, DNA sample input. So the the point is to accumulate as many UMIs as possible uh, to observe enough number of errors you know because these polymerase errors usually occur in a low probability maybe 10 to the uh, minus 5 10 to the minus 6 in that scale so you need to you need a lot of uh, you need a very high umi depth to observe those errors then to to get a uh, distribution but that is a cell line. So somewhere in a laboratory, these cells 
they somehow reproduce or they're cloned. How do you know there wasn't a genuine variant that was introduced while this cell line is maintained? Yeah, we don't know that. Uh, all we can all we can do is assume uh, there is none. Mm. It's 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 very unlikely. Wouldn't it be the same sort of polymerase error just introduced sort of on an earlier stage? I think it's different from uh, cell reproduce and this our experiment, library prep experiment. Uh, again, uh, I'm not a molecular biologist, but my lab scientist colleague told me that uh, they think it's very unlikely to to have a genuine mutation from the uh, cell re- reproducing process. It's much more likely to have these kind of errors when you prepare the library. Yeah, and so in your preprint, you mentioned that you observe different probabilities for different kinds of mutations, so transitions versus transversions. Right. So does that mean you have several different beta distributions? Ideally, we you would want several different beta distributions, uh, each modeling one type of base substitution error. Uh, however, we don't. We only have two different error profiles, one for the high error rates and the other for the lower error rate. Uh, the main reason is to model the low error rates, which are in uh, in the one in a million scale, uh, you would need a huge number of molecules. Uh, you need a huge sample input and a huge sequencer. That that kind of experiment is uh, too expensive, and uh, that's one reason. That's the limit of resource. Uh, the other reason is to detect 0.5% mutations. Uh, we feel that it's not it's not required. It's not required to go go down to model those extremely low error rates. Now, if you are trying to detect like 0.1% or 0.001% mutations in one of those cell-free DNA applications, then you probably need to accurately model every type of uh, uh, base substitution errors. But in our application, that's not an absolute requirement. Got it. But but you still have two different conditions, high types of mutations, right, and low types of mutations. And so you have two different beta distributions for them. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, we, yeah, we try to you know, take advantage of what we have. Right. And you also have, in, in the preprint, you have some formulas where you adjust the beta parameters. So what is that about? Right. So as I just described, the beta distribution was developed using an independent data set, very deeply sequenced and very high sample input. Uh, however, we are not certain if that distribution will apply to the new data sets. Even though the new data set, uh, we assume they come from the same library preparation kit, still there would be run-to-run variation. There's nothing, uh, there's no complete reproducibility. So to adjust this run-to-run variation, 
we came up with this idea to adjust the beta distribution parameters according to the every individual data set. So initially, we wanted to do in a in a Bayesian way. So you sort of have a prior distribution, then the data come in, you you update the parameters uh, to get a you know, according to the posterior distribution, that kind of uh, method. Uh, but the challenge is usually you don't have uh, usually the incoming data set is not deep enough because in real applications you're not going to put 300 nanogram DNA into into the tube. In real applications, you probably only have 2,000 uh, UMIs per per base, and uh, with that kind of UMI depths, you're not going to see many uh, PCR error rates. Uh, so that that is one one reason, and also of course in in the real application you don't have a ground truth, so you you don't know which which one is real, which one is not. So with these challenges in mind, uh, how can you adjust the beta distribution? I think the key is that uh, you can't have a you can't have a distribution from your in, incoming data set, but what you can do is to calculate the the mean of the uh, error rate across all the bases. So you aggregate the UMIs across all the positions, and you stack them together, you, you're going to have a huge read stack. Then in that read stack, you're going to observe there, there will be enough first cycle PCR errors. Uh, but that would be the mean. So the only thing you can do is to adjust the mean of the beta distribution while leaving the standard deviation unchanged. Right, that, that's very cool. So you essentially, you take a second use of the UMI data, right? You don't just discard those and and leave just the consensus basis, but you also use the information that you have to estimate the error rate from like with, within the UMI families, right? Uh, within those where not all the reads agree. Uh, no, we we still we still discard the non-consensus UMIs. We are we are basically aggregating the UMIs across all the positions. How do you know that those are polymerase errors and not sequencing errors? Right, because sequencing errors will be there too. Sequencing errors will result in non-agreed UMIs, which will be discarded. Okay, so so you're looking only only at the families where all the reads agree, or at least eighty percent reads agree. Eighty percent agreement. Yeah. Right, and uh, and what what do you count as an error there? We we don't know because in in real applications right. there's no ground truth, right? Right, right. But but you have to do right based on your algorithm. We have to. I think what we did is we counted anything below 1% non-reference. So we, we count the non-reference UMIs, uh, the pr- proportion of non-reference UMIs. If it's below 1%, we just assume it's an error. It's, a, it's a overly conservative, but uh, again, as I told you, our emphasis is on specificity. We don't want false positives, so we, we would want to be conservative. 
in this sense. Right, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Although the, the premise of correcting the beta distribution doesn't quite make sense to me. So you're saying that because we have lower sequencing depth, right? But mm -hmm. what, what you're trying to model is the polymerase error rate. And surely yeah. the polymerase doesn't care about how deep you sequence, right? So why would the polymerase error rate change based on the details of your downstream you know, processing and analysis? Uh, okay, let me, let me rephrase your question. You want to know why, the, why did we do this uh, beta parameter adjustment? Yeah. It's because we want to account for this run-to-run -run variation because each run is different. I mean, by run, I mean the sequencing experiment, the whole library preparation plus sequencing experiment. So each individual run will generate an individual error profile, although they would presumably be similar to, to, the, to the one that we modeled, but there would be some level of difference. Right. And, uh, we want, so, so we want to um, account for this difference in our error modeling. Yeah, it, so you yeah. mentioned Bayesian modeling, and it does sound like you know, this Bayesian tower of, of priors where you have, first you have probabilities, then you have a beta distribution over probabilities, then you have this distribution over beta distributions because you want sort of everything to, to vary, right? You, you want yeah. to allow it to vary. Yeah, but uh, that unfortunately will not work because of the uh, shallow uh, UMI depth in the incoming data set. Yeah. You know, in order to update the beta distribution you want to, you will have to observe a you will have to observe enough uh umi you, enough uh polymerase error in your incoming data which we don't because of the uh shallow umi depths you won't observe enough uh errors at each base in in majority of the positions you're going to observe zero polymerase umi so there's no way you can update the whole distribution using a Bayesian method. Uh, mm. But what you can do is to update the mean of the distribution. Because although each base or each position has a low UMI depth, and when you add them together, you have a pretty high UMI depth. This high UMI depth allows you to have a relatively more accurate estimate of the mean error rate. That That's the rationale behind it. All right. I think that's about all I wanted to ask you. Um, this is very interesting to understand better how SM Counter 2 works and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the rationale behind it. Um, yep. Before we end this conversation, is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to mention or talk about? Uh, yeah, sure. I just want to uh, emphasize on some of other upgrades that SM Counter 2 did. So, as you know, our group has released SM Counter two years ago, and uh, now this SM Counter 2, there are a lot of good features. One of them is uh, what we just discussed that we have this error modeling of the uh, polymerase error. Uh, which allows 
higher sensitivity and specificity, and also allows us to detect even lower allele frequencies. For example, we are getting very good results on 0.5% variance,、uh, and initially in SM counter we were only able to get down to 1%. There are some other nice features.、Uh, one of them, the most important one, is the better performance in non-coding regions, especially in the repetitive region, such as homopolymers and uh, uh, you know、uh, dinucleotide repeats. In SM counter and uh, uh, in some other traditional variant quarters, this is very difficult because the error rates in these regions are extremely high.、Uh, so we kind of、uh, we we basically masked out these regions. So basically, we're not calling anything from this region. So zero sensitivity and zero、uh, and and zero false positives in in the previous version. But now we have this much improved. Uh, repetitive region filter. It's a much more smarter filter that takes advantage of many UMI specific feature. So it it does a much better job distinguishing real mutations from the artifacts in in these repetitive regions. So the performance in the non-coding region is greatly improved. So that's a fe- that's another. A、uh, good feature of SM Counter too.、Uh, another one is、uh, in SM Counter, the variant calling threshold is、uh, is a moving target.、Uh, it depends on the UMI depths. So basically, if you have、uh, higher UMI depths, then the variant calling threshold will be higher. But this is no longer the case in SM Counter too. In SM Counter Two, we have only one constant、uh, threshold that applies to almost all different applications. Also, I guess for the users, the most important update is we are releasing the read processing code. You know, in SM Counter, it's a it's only a variant caller, but in SM Counter Two,、uh, it goes from the raw reads, the fast queue reads.、Uh, Includes how you、uh, clip the primers, clip the、uh, UMI sequences, including how you map the the reads. So it's an entire complete pipeline from FASTQ to VCF,、uh, including the annotations also. And also, it's、uh, released as a, a Docker image. So as a user, you don't need to download all the download and install all the. Uh, dependencies so saves you a lot of time. Cool.、Uh, do you know whether anyone is using SM Counter two already、uh, outside of Kaijin? I do not. I do not.、Uh, we haven't. I don't think we have officially、uh, released that yet.、Um, it'll be released pretty soon. Once we release, there will be many uses. And how does that process work? How do you release? SM Counter too. I guess it's not. It's not just about uploading to GitHub, but there's something going like through the official channels. We have a cloud service.、Uh, so basically, our customers once they finish their sequencing, they're going to upload the reads to our cloud service. Then、uh, SM Counter Two is running behind the scene. Ah,、uh, I see. Yeah, I see. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, we, we we hope there are more users are interested in it. Obviously, besides the besides our customers. Awesome. Well, Chang, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.